Uh, welcome to Insights, a podcast by Elite Admit. Uh, we're the top admissions consulting firm in Southeast Asia, uh, and we are talking about uh, Stanford MSX today. So really excited about uh, this new program. Uh, well, not new to the world, but uh, new to the podcast. So uh, it's essentially uh, an EMBA, an executive MBA. So it's for people with more experience. And we also have a guest that uh, comes from a family business background, large family business uh, that I think is going to be really helpful, and that's Pla. So, Pla, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, can you please introduce yourself? Thank you, Lin. Um, I'm so excited to join you today. So, my name is Pla, and I'm now working as a director of asset management of my family property group, um, and I am also CEO of a new company called Aquavertus, which we basically produce alcohol for sanitize. Um, and this is new business that uh, just start after the COVID. Uh, oh, happened. okay. Yeah. Great. So this is, a, obviously, I've known uh, the, the main business is uh, sugar processing, manufacturing. Um, there's also some hospitality, um, shipping, things like that. But uh, medical is not something I've, that I've heard of before. So is this a new venture for you? Yes, um, but it's actually an uh, expansion of our main business. So as you remember, we have sugar business, right? Right. And uh, for us, uh, we produce sugar from sugar cane, and right. we have molasses as a byproduct of sugar. Uh, we use those molasses to produce alcohol. And uh, before, we just export those uh, alcohol for, it could be for uh, drinking, for medical, but when the COVID starts, uh, we realize that there are the shortage of alcohol for tennis sanitized in Thailand. And the price was just skyrocket. Like it's too crazy wow. at that time. Okay. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so we made a decision that uh, we need to um, produce alcohol for to help people to to clean basically to help them save from COVID and other germs. So we start this new business to um, produce alcohol for 70% alcohol for sanitize and we uh, sell it to consumer. We work with 7-Eleven and other um, consumer product uh, company that help distribute this to people, basically. Yeah. That's great. Um, I knew you had done, obviously with sugarcane, there's a lot of you know, byproducts and uh, you had done biomass energy, I think is kind of a common choice. Um, but very interesting that alcohol is a byproduct that you knew it had value because you were selling it, but now you've decided to move downstream yourself and you're going all the way. It's not B2B. I mean, you're going B2C, right? You're, yes. you're producing a branded yes. product. Well, very yes. cool. How long has that been going on? Um, for a year already. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what an interesting space. And and why, again, when you have this many options, I know you did the uh, the resort for a while, um, just because it's awesome. I, I love the resort. Um, uh, it's my f- mom's favorite memory from Thailand. So uh, <laughs> so the, the resort and the elephant reserve, super cool. Um, and then obviously you were working in the, the, sh- the main sugar business uh, to IPO before you went to school. Uh, yes. So you can kind of do whatever you want. Why? Why this new venture? Is it because it's new or is it because it's medical or what attracted you to it? Um, I think it's uh, because of it helps people 
So mm. we we can use our um, things that we already have, but to add on value to help others. So right. yeah, that's what we do. But it's not the only thing I'm doing right now. I also do other things as well, which uh, we we can talk about that later. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No. I mean, I think that's the cool thing about having a diversified, uh, you know, business is that you. You don't have to just do one thing. In fact, as you know, in family business, you almost can't. You know, you do have to at least have a hand in a lot of different uh, things because you are the. I know you have a younger brother, but are you the oldest? Um, I also have one elder brother as well. Oh, okay. So I know everybody has to play a role, but there's a lot of options out there. Uh, so uh, so it's cool that you're you're working in these different spaces. And as you said, we can we can dive into that later. Uh, but maybe just to walk people through the journey, um, you know, you went to Stanford MSX, uh, fantastic. It's, it is in the Stanford Graduate School of Business. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's something that maybe ties don't hear about. I think it's simply because ties won't wait eight years to apply to school. Uh, so it's, it's really about timing, but it's a fantastic school. It's not, um, it's not like in a separate part of Stanford. It's in the GSB. Uh, and we'll talk about the uh, the mixture because um, I remember talking while you were there, and, and some classes were with the the younger students, and some classes were separate. And so uh, I will be interested in that. But uh, but to get there, uh, you uh, were already doing family business, right? A lot of people say I want an MBA because I want to make an impact. But I think when we met, you were doing the IPO or had been for like a year. I think it was a really long process. Can you can you tell us about the pre uh, MBA experience and and what you were doing? Sure. Yes. So um, before I uh, went to MBA, I was um, graduated in Thailand. So uh, I took my economics undergrad, and then after I finished my first job at that time was to join my family business and help them restructure the debt because uh, I have to go back before uh, during 1997 that there were Asian financial crisis if you remember right. <laughs> at the time yeah I, I was um, young pretty young yeah. at the time but then um, our sugar business was um, we took lots of loan to expand our business at that time. And uh, during the crisis, our debt was double from the exchange rate. So right. at that time, we had a $1 billion debt. God. Yeah. I remember. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Right? Yeah. And that's was crazy. And then when, when I finished my uh, undergrad, my father asked me to join because he wanted us to uh, restructure the debt. So that was my first job. To, <laughs> to restructure a billion dollars in debt. What a great first job. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and it was very uh, interesting. So uh, we negotiated with the creditors mm -hmm. to um, restructure the debt. And of course, we do some, um, we inject new uh, fund from new partners as well. Uh, eventually, we, after a year that we work at a time, we can reduce the debts and change the payment period from 25 years to eight years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And that was a big part of your application. I mean, this is one of your big achievements, right? So, I mean, this was playing a role in the process. Yes. Yes. And, and that was um, part of, um, after that event, I actually 
think a lot. I I talk to myself that I imagine a family business that almost bankrupt from right. from the crisis, right? So at that time, I asked myself, how can we make the business more sustained? And after um, learn like find out what other people did at the time, eventually I decided that we need to IPO our company. So that's like the next thing that I have done at that time. I talked to my family to um, persuade them to to buy this idea to <laughs> IPO. <laughs> right. Yeah, which actually quite difficult because my family were you know like uh, Chinese business people and they thought that it should be fam- family owned. Right. Yeah. So we. I, I spent actually a year just to convince my wow. father and all the uncle and aunts. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 But eventually they agreed. So after they agreed, I was the person who led the project to restructure the company and uh, get business ready for IPO. Yeah. Well, this is one of my favorite parts of the story because I think this is where we start to get that Stanford fit. Because um, obviously you're working with bankers and an IPO process is, is pretty straightforward about, you know, uh, structuring things, getting everything cleaned up and organized and, uh, you know, the right accounting and all that kind of stuff that the set requires. Um, but the other thing is you, you had a goal in mind, which was to um, make sure that, that your suppliers, which are the, you know, small scale farmers, felt a part of this process. And if I remember correctly, you actually either picked a bank or changed banks so that you could issue paper stock. Am, am I remembering yes. correctly? Yes, yes, correct, correct, yeah. Yeah, so at a time, um, because we decided that we need to include the farmers into our shareholders, um, maybe I, I can tell you a bit before. So since my grandfather and my father started this sugar business, they actually um, worked, with farmers um, and got lots of support from them. So um, because of the farmers, we can keep expand our factories mm. because they help provide us um, the sugarcane, right? So we start from uh, building a sugarcane farmer school and have farmers come to learn the techniques to make sure that they become a successful farmers. That's awesome. And with that, yeah. So we, we, because of them, we can keep expanding our uh, factory and become one of the biggest factory in Thailand. So um, as a result, we really have deep connection with the farmers. And we think that now we become IPO company and become a successful business. We should include them to be part of ownership because if we have farmers uh, be part of the owner, they feel more involved and if company make profit they can uh you know get dividend not only to to get the money when they sell sugarcane to us but they also get benefits from that so it's right. very important no, yeah. I think that's great um and you know for context for people thai people i'm, I'm sure are actually i don't know i think people may not know this we think of thailand as you know, rubber and, and some other things like that, uh, rice, obviously. Uh, but Thailand is one of the largest sugar manufacturers in the world. And so when you're 
uh, saying we're one of the largest in Thailand, that also places you in the largest in the world. But it's also a very competitive space. You're, you're kind of competing with uh, suppliers, right? Because the people growing the sugar cane can sell it to whoever they want. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So you do want to develop those relationships, both because you want them to feel a part of things. You know, they're they were important to your growth, and I know there was an emotional um, reasoning behind it. And again, that's where we get our Stanford fit. Uh, but there's a practical reason too, because if they feel like they're a part of the company, then year after year they're going to sell to you as opposed to a competitor, right? Yes, correct. Exactly. Uh, Okay. Um, and when you mention uh, the, the farming school, I think that's really cool because it's not just like, you know, plant some sugar cane and, and sit around and, and, and see what happens. You know, there, there are definitely best practices. There's a lot of research that's always going on. You're, you're definitely at the top of this. Um, there's a social enterprise that I know, uh, the founder, and uh, one of the things we talked about recently was that, that with sugar cane specifically, you have to get people to wait to harvest. You know, they see it grown and they want to cut it down and get their money right away. But if they wait, you know, another week or two or three, the sugar, the amount of sugar in that same cane goes up and is therefore more valuable, right? So is this, yes. is, I mean, these are the kinds of things you're teaching the farmers. Yes, exactly. Okay, because that's really difficult with, uh, with people that are kind of living day to day uh, it's one of the challenges with, that we've seen with people working with farmers, whether that's, uh, you know, I've definitely worked with a lot of uh, sugar companies themselves, but with these, uh, you know, social enterprises that are trying to help farmers, it can be difficult to convince them to delay that income. And, and justifiably, it's, it's hard to, to wait for your money. But when you know it's going to be worth more, uh, even a couple of weeks from now, I think that's, that's really helpful. Um, so yes. So that's important to teach them. In fact, I think there's this little device uh, and I feel like it's on like Alibaba. Are, probably the good versions are more expensive, but I mean, th there are some stuff you could like buy it on Shopee maybe. Um, and it will it will test the amount of sugar in the cane. Yeah, yes, yes. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I mean, these are things that you would never know if you were you know, a farmer or in the sugar business. Uh, and so for most people driving by, it's like that is... Uh, ready to harvest. Looks like sugar. It looks like corn. It looks like whatever, right? But uh, with sugar, it's what's on the inside, and that uh, percentage of of sugar changes. Uh, and so there is a like a perfect time to harvest. Correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then one of the, the things again to go back to uh, you know your profile and how that fits so well with Stanford because. Stanford in general, obviously, is extraordinarily difficult to get into. Half the class size of Harvard, very difficult. MSX, also very difficult. Um, so you do have to not only be a great business person, but you, you, you want to look for that social fit, that personality fit, uh, things like that. And one of the stories that you told me uh, that has always stayed with me, actually, this is a good time to point out, how long ago did you apply? Wow was um i i graduated from 2016 okay so wow so you've been out for six years which means yeah. you applied uh nine years ago or something like that it's crazy yeah um <laughs> so it's been a long time so that shows you if i still remember this story it must be a good story but um it really resonated with me because you know you talked about the reason paper stock was important is that they 
that a lot of these farmers really have to hold something in their hand. Um, and they're not used to, you know, a banking app where money is just a number on your phone. They have, you, you told me they would like bury it in the yard, right? Like, or put it under their bed or, or something like that. Like it was really important to be able to hold it. Um, and, and these are people that are not, you know, really part of the traditional banking system. Is that accurate? Yes, um, especially if you talked about today, right? Now people start to feel familiar with online things, right? Mm -hmm. Like banking, online bankings. But um, imagine around 10 years ago, Right. It's not like this. Yeah. Right. And and especially for farmers who many of them are um, the other generation, my father's generation. So for them to have like a paper um, to hold and to put it on the wall, make, right. you know, like make it more real and make make even make some of them feel proud that they yeah. are. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Their, it's almost like a yeah. diploma on the wall. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, and you told me a story and, and I, and it's been a decade. So if you don't remember the details, you know, I, I understand, but you know, you went in person to actually give people paper stock. So, I mean, you got to actually experience that emotional connection and see how people responded. Uh, can you tell us what it was like for these people to get stock in a huge company? Um, yeah, at a time I, I went there not just at, um, when we handle the paper stock things, but I went there during, you know, before we distribute shares, right? So I have to be there and explain to the farmers what is shares, what right, right. So, um, like if if they have it, like what it means for them, like to be owner of the company, what it means, right? And I, I think, um, as as my family worked with. Um, these farmers for long term, I can feel that um, they are very friendly and they look at me as if I'm like their children or something like right. that. And yeah, and and I feel very warm when, when I be there. So I, I guess I, I did not ask them like how they feel, but right. I just guess that they're, yeah, I, I think they, they feel proud and happy to be part of That's our awesome. company. I remember when you were telling me the story, it reminded me of being in, in rural Vietnam. And again, you have to think it's not today. You know, this was 15 years ago, 16 years ago when I was still a journalist and, and going to someone's house off in a, a, you know, a flooded rice paddy. And I remember a little kid cutting sugar cane and bringing it to us to like just eat raw um, and really cool. But we got to the house and there's no furniture. There's like one piece of furniture that's probably a hundred years old and it's this you know, old um, uh, dresser. But when they went and got a, a, a school photo of one of the kids and it was like they were handling gold or something so valuable, you know, they had to get on a stool and it was kept on the top of the dresser. And, and you see like just how important certain things are to them because they don't have a lot of things. Um, and because of it is rare, uh, and so I remember you saying that's how they kind of felt about whether that was pulling money from out, out from under the bed or hand, handling, handling the stock, or like you said, putting it on the wall. I think there was a real sense of, of emotional connection and just, they really valued, uh, what they were getting. It wasn't just the, the value of like, all right, this is however many bought of stock. It was, it was something more, right? 
Yes, definitely. Um, I love that. So I've, I've always liked that. And I think that Stanford did too. Uh, so I think uh, the fact that you, uh, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but the first bank didn't want to do paper and you went to a second bank. Is that right? Yes, we changed. Yeah. Uh, we have changed the bank. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I think, again, I think Stanford loved it. That shows that it wasn't just some nice little add-on. It was something that was really important to you uh, for both emotional and practical reasons. So uh, so that's really cool. Uh, and those are the kind of little details I think people don't know, but those are the little details that make such a big difference, not just in an application, but in an interview. Um, I changed banks to get paper stock for my farmers. I mean, what a great uh, sentence, you know? Um, also, we're not talking about five giant farmers that have, you know, 10,000 rye, right? We're talking about a bunch of small farmers. Yes, yes, over thousands. Of right, so yeah. Uh, again, very different. Uh, so I just wanna make sure people are picturing what I'm picturing, what you're picturing. Um, so, uh, <laughs> you know, these small scale farmers are, are getting to own stock in, in one of the largest sugar companies in the world. That's, that's really exciting um, and cool for them, I know. Um, and so these are the stories that, that worked so well uh, and really important parts of your profile. And then I think, were you either prepared for IPO or you had IPO'd before you went to Stanford? We, uh, I finished I've done it before. Yes. Okay. So you IPO'd successfully, uh, and then um, I'm sure fully subscribed and and all of that kind of stuff. And and then you were able to say, okay, the company's healthy. I've done two things. I restructured debt. I've IPO'd. Um, that injects a lot of capital. Things are in a good place. Uh, and then you feel more comfortable stepping away and, and going to, to Stanford. Before I jump into the experience and ask you about that, I want to uh, clarify something that else that I think was really interesting, which is that GSB requires, Stanford, uh, requires eight years of work experience for MSX. And so that's why a lot of people don't apply. They don't wanna wait until they're 30. And, and that's upon entry. But as I recall, you had to ask for special permission to apply because you were only going to be at seven or, or, or something like that. So uh, is that right? That you didn't fully meet the criteria? Exactly. Yes. Um, at that time, I, I worked for maybe six something years. And if even uh, counts until the day I start my school, it would be seven each. Yeah. Right. But, yeah. But because of experience that I had during, I, I was an undergrad. I worked with my family business already right. as a part-time. Yeah. Right. So I I asked them and they said, it's fine uh, right. considering experience that I have. And that's awesome. And I will point out, uh, I've seen a lot of people and had a lot of people ask for permission. They don't always say yes. So, uh, you know, they said yes to you and people can start to think, oh, they're really flexible. They're really not. <laughs> They're pretty <laughs> absolutist about these are the requirements. Uh, but as you said, when you're in a family business, you're always working in the family business, uh, which is something I've explained to uh, adcoms. You know, we'll talk to the, the dean of admissions of different schools and things like that. And uh, we run several scholarship programs and scholars are always young. You know, they're 24, 25 years old and schools don't particularly like that. 
and they are always asking me, why are they so young? Why are they applying so early? They don't have enough experience. And one of the things I have to explain is that if you're in a family business, you have experience way beyond the official experience. You know, since you were six years old or 10 years old, you're, you're, you're sitting around listening to, as you said, your uncles and your aunts and, and uh, your father and maybe your grandfather talk about business. You're just kind of raised inside it. Um, and so you get exposure probably your whole life, right? That's so true. Yeah. I remember I was, um, it was just like that since I was young. Um, when I remember, uh, I remember when I was so young, I went to factory with my father and I have to walk to um, walk around the factory since I was around 10 or below. Yeah. Right. And, and that I sit um, in the meeting that they talk about the future of the business since I was in my, you know, like junior or something like that. So it's like an everyday thing that I, I just even realized when I grown up that, oh, other people don't have this experience. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it's normal for people to, to talk about business all right. the time. And yeah. No, I think that's great. Uh, as you said, I mean, you were on the factory floor, you were sitting in those meetings and uh, we're not that old, but uh, there were no iPads. There was no, iP you weren't sitting there playing and ignoring them. I mean, you had no choice but to listen. I mean, you were, you were part of it, right? <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. Uh, yeah. So I think that's fantastic. And ultimately that's what convinced Stanford okay, you have enough experience to apply. That's the first thing. Can you get permission? And, and we call it a waiver, but there, you, you have to, people have to get waivers for different things. Often it's TOEFL or IELTS or uh, sometimes it's GPA. Uh, some of our uh, scholars from like PTT, SCG for technical programs, you have to have a, a specific GPA uh, and you can ask permission like, hey, I'm slightly below, but here are the circumstances. Can I apply? And a lot of times they say yes, sometimes they say no, but uh, yours was specifically for years of work experience. Um, and so the explanation I think was really important, which is I've been working for the family business for a very long time, uh, not just since graduation. And, and ultimately Stanford saw that and said, sure, you can apply. Doesn't mean you're going to get in, just means you are allowed to apply uh, for the uh, program. And then, um, and then, you know, then there's an even harder part, which is putting together the, this fantastic application, getting your recommendations. Uh, recommendations for family business is always hard because, you know, you can't get it from your dad or your grandfather. So a lot of times it's business partners or, or clients or, or, or different things like that. Um, and then, and you had to interview at this time, right? There were still interviewing? Yes. Okay. Yeah, there was interview. Um, how did you do that at the time? There was it wasn't Zoom interviews or anything like that. So who did you talk to? It it was a Zoom at that time. It was okay. Yeah, yeah, and um, mine was um, one of the um, was who was that? Um, she, she was um, uh, I think she was assistant director or something of of the program. Okay. Yeah, I, well, that's intimidating. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, because a lot of times, it, in fact, for the regular MBA, it's always an alum. Uh, yes. Always. Yes. Yeah. So, mine. 
was, was, was an admissions yeah. officer and we call yes. it an adcom, uh, but also a very <laughs> high ranking adcom. So, uh, <laughs> so that's pretty intimidating. And, but the good thing about that is uh, as opposed to an alumni interview, if it goes well, it's risk reward, right? If it goes poorly, uh, the person in charge knows that it didn't go well and, and it's kind of dead. Um, but when it goes well, you're you're really confident because it's not like uh, you're not just getting a letter. This is the person that helps make the decision. Mm. So uh, and and they don't have as many uh, time limits and things like that. So uh, I assume you had a good conversation. Uh, what, what was it like? Was it technical? Was it conversational? Do you remember? Um, well, that was nearly 10 years ago. Um, I think it was about, uh, she talked about my experience, just uh, conversation and okay. it was around like my application. I basically, yeah, the, the, the story that I, I wrote in the application and she that's, just that's what I thought was. That's what I thought as well. And again, this is very different from uh, the Stanford, the regular Stanford GSB program, because that is a blind interview. They don't, in when you applied, they didn't know, they didn't have your resume. The interviewer didn't know anything about you. So it was a completely blind interview. You had to go into a non-blind interview, which is more like Harvard. And that's a very stressful environment. They've already read all your stuff. So the questions are a lot more difficult. They can be very probing questions. They're familiar with your application. So a lot of times they have very specific questions ready. So I think what was clear about your interview is that you have to really know what you're talking about. You can't just yes. say, I led my company's IPO and really the banker did everything and call it a day because they're going to ask you, you know? And so that we, I, I remember it was a lot more technical than Stanford would normally be. And I think that's when you really got tested on that waiver, which is, oh, I have tons of work experience because I worked in my family business forever. Well, this is their chance to find out if that's true, <laughs> you know? Um, and so they ask you uh, some very specific questions. They're familiar with your profile. Um, and so I think you had to go through barriers that the, the, the regular uh, GSB program does not. Um, so different circumstances, different process uh, to get there, but ultimately you did get there. And so um, such a huge achievement. As I said, GSB is RE, sorry, Stanford GSB, uh, Graduate School of Business, is uh, very difficult to get into for any program. Uh, MSX, quite rare. So that was really exciting. Uh, what about, so you, there's all this buildup to it. You know, there's the application, there's the waiver, there's the interview, there's that. And then you finally get that acceptance. Super exciting. What was that like for your family? Because I know for a lot of people, Harvard's really famous or Oxford or Cambridge. Did Was Stanford a big deal? Did they get it? <laughs> I, I would say you, you just said it correctly. My dad just knew Harvard. And okay. when he said, well, I got into Stanford, he said, well, what, what's that? And he, I, <laughs> I think he... He didn't realize until I came back and when he talked to other people that I uh, studied Stanford and people just like, wow, yeah. like, that's amazing. And my dad, right. oh, really? So now <laughs> he started to realize after talking to other people. Well, that's great. <laughs> I'm glad he could get pr be proud of you after the fact that and it continues to grow because, yeah, for the older generation, uh, there are 
only certain schools, and we've talked about it on other podcasts, but there are a lot of people that will apply to Oxford and Cambridge just because everybody knows it. You know, even if they want to go to the U.S. into a two-year program, they'll still apply to Oxford and Cambridge because they can tell their parents and grandparents and stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, I mean, what an experience where you go through a class size, like I said, half the size of Harvard, huge deal to get accepted, but not everybody gets it. So, but at least you got it. You knew that you got in somewhere special, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So you knew that beforehand and then you get there. Was it as special as you expected? What, what was it like? Wow. I, I would say um, it's even much better than what I expected. I, I always tell people that um, I have a life-changing experience in Stanford because um, it changed my mindset about things that I can do or those things. So it's very huge for me. Yeah, that's great. Um, and that is something I think you hear about all MBA programs, but definitely Stanford. Uh, it, it is life changing. The exposure uh, being over on the West Coast is, is a different environment. Um, definitely entrepreneurial mindset and, and things like that. And again, this is right as the family business IPOs and uh, you're able to diversify into some different things. I know you uh, started doing some shipping. Uh, I think this is about the time that that you bought the resort as well too, right? That wasn't part of the core business originally? Um, the resort? Uh-huh. Uh, well, that, that time was um, my core still um, a sugar business. But um, since I came back from Sanford, I, I started doing, continue the, the, set, um, the resort thing. Yes. Right. And it's, such a wonderful place to be. It was like a reward for getting your uh, MBA, uh, uh, MSX, uh, GMBA. Uh, but uh, that's, I think, really cool that you were able to, I mean, it's such a diverse experience. You learned so much at Stanford that you could be good at all of that. You know, you were good at the core business. Obviously, now you're doing the downstream alcohol, so you understand value-added products, but you're able to go work at a resort where that's a totally different experience uh, in hospitality, but also it's a very special place. It, it's an elephant sanctuary as well, so it's got a different kind of positioning. Uh, so, you know, you had to learn how to do a lot of different things. Is Stanford a good place for that? Um, yes, definitely. I think um, what I have learned from Stanford, um, which is important for me, um, that there are actually, there are so many things that are useful, right? But I think things that um, help changing me a lot um, is one thing is called the, the, core, the class that I study in the design school. Have you heard about that? I have. The oh, Stanford please, the, school. Yeah, yeah, tell me. So, yeah, I love so, it. So it's, it's um, design thinking. Yeah. Which um, for people that I think there are many people heard about this I thinking already, but for me, I would explain it as a, a framework of how we solve the problem. Yep. And the, um, at first when I be there, um, I heard about design school, right? And I heard that there are many people interested to learn design thinking. So I attend a class and after that, I really love it. So I keep um, taking so many classes from there. Uh, so when, when you are in GSB, um, I mean, business school, even though you are 
in business school, you have a chance to study from any other school that you're interested in. This is one good thing about Stanford. So um, I learned design thinking from design school and then I love it. So I keep uh, continue learning more like deeper and deeper stuff from there. Um, just a side note that is quite funny. When I told my parents that I study design thinking, they start to feel worried. They thought that I went there to, you know, like design to draw. drawing. <laughs> yeah, to draw. <laughs> and, and I said, well, no, it's um, like a framework for me how to solve a problem. And I think right. this is important because it's like the heart of many things, like to solve problems, to create innovation for product developments, for like to start all the new things. And I can bring this back to Thailand to work for my family business in every field, you know, to, to do like innovation, to do um, business development. So it's, uh, it's things that changed my life, yeah. Right, I mean, it is such a powerful tool. Um, and again, this is 10 years ago when, uh, yes, everybody talks about design thinking now, but they didn't then. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I think it's with something that people know better now, but at the time, uh, much less familiar with it. Um, and it, like you said, it's a framework. It's, it's kind of like case where you have different frameworks and different ways of thinking about problems um, the way consultants do. But design thinking is so popular. In fact, we did an episode on it. Our episode four is uh, somebody that used design thinking in healthcare to redesign hospitals mm. um, and mm. to get uh, to understand nurses and to understand different stakeholders. Uh, and so that was really interesting. But as you said, it kind of works anywhere. Uh, and so uh, again, uh, for people that haven't maybe listened to that episode, just to go through the steps of design thinking, um, traditionally it is empathize, understand other people. Then you have to define the problem. Then you ideate, just think about solutions. Uh, then you prototype a solution, then you test. And what's powerful mm -hmm. about it is you can go back and repeat processes, right? Uh, mm -hmm. When people do the fail fast thing, you know, they, they always say fail fast. Uh, I, I'm still a person that likes to not fail. But the, the cool thing about design thinking is you can fail fast and you just jump back to step three or whatever, you know, you ideate again, you prototype, you test, you ideate, you prototype, you test. Uh, so it is a way to, to think about problems and to solve problems. Um, and, and, and I think that fits perfectly with what you described earlier, the ability to work in the core business downstream into uh, you know alcohol and medical and go all the way B2C because you are empathizing and understanding the end user. Um, and actually, now that I think about it, that's what you were doing before you even know, knew what it was called. That's what you were doing with the, the farmers, right? You were yes. empathizing with them. <laughs> so what a great thing where you didn't even know the framework, uh, but you, it was kind of built into you to think about these, these other stakeholders. So that's probably one of the reasons why it fits so well with you. Um, but it just, like you said, it gives you a, a mindset and a framework for approaching these different problems. Uh, so super cool. I love design thinking, really glad to hear that that was impactful. Um, one thing uh, I, I like to point out, and I, I mentioned this to clients a lot when they're thinking about uh, you know, MSX or, or, or things like that, uh, 
you work, you, it's not a separate program. Uh, it's partly with younger students, uh, but I think it became clear why MSX exists and why it's important because, you know, MSX is a lot of 30 year olds, 35 year olds, professionals, executives. You said there wasn't, the, there wasn't a lot of arrogance. People knew who they were. They were comfortable in their own skin. They had had a lot of experience. And so that, that doesn't always fit well with the brash, ultra confident, you know, 25 year old uh, consultants or investment bankers. So it was important that, uh, that they were different programs because you, you did feel like the people were a little bit different, right? Yes, definitely. Um, maybe I can share with you a little bit more about um, MSX in case it's um, useful for people. So for me, if I uh, compare this to um, other executive MBAs, I, I think it's a little different because for me, when talking about executive MBAs, it's more like, um, you know, like a, a, an evening course or, mm. or uh, weekends where you went there and learn, right? But mainly just to learn and get connection. But for this uh, MSX, it's more like a full-time course and you really have to pay attention and you get a grade. And you right. can can fail like normal, <laughs> <laughs> normal students. Um, but the, one of the difference is that they need people that have more experience, like you said, eight years, right? And these are people that already in like work and they know what they want, or they might just they need to upgrade themselves to be in a higher position. So um the key difference of this program and MBA is that one, um, you they um, shorten the core course, which um, basically those you know accounting, finance, mm. those basic things that you should have known when you already uh, worked, they combine it together in one uh, in one semester, start in in summer. Okay. Yeah, so, so um, you spend one summer to study those core class. And after that, you start um, the next semester together with MBAs. And for those electives, you just, um, most of your electives would be together with MBAs. Okay. Yeah, so, so you save time to study the core class, which they assume that you already have experience, right? Right. Right, and then um, the other thing is that the MBAs will have um, the time that they do internship, but for MSX students, most of us already have job or come from uh, uh, experience work, so we skip those part so we can go back to work in, like go back to work in our uh, career or other things faster. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, 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 and and for my uh, classmate, I, I would say uh, at that time I was actually the youngest uh, in my <laughs> class. Right. But there, there were um, many people that are similar age as my. At that time I was around 27, 28, which is like well, um, around the youngest, the youngest at that time. But there are people around 40 ish as well. Mm. But their, their background are amazing. For example, I had a classmate who is CFO of one of the biggest banks in the country. Wow. Or 
or uh, another friend, which she is around the same age as mine, was um, at the time, and now she's still she is the founder of nonprofit organization in Africa. That's great. Yeah, and and another one is captain of um, the navy. Uh, what do you say? Uh, the the navy ship. Yeah. Yeah. And those like yeah. So wow. it's like very a lot diverse. of diversity. Yeah, I was about to yeah, say but, that exact word. Yeah. 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 But but um and, and also those um some countries and uh the government like uh young generation but very smart people to study and then when they go back they become important people in the government of the country right so yeah we're like very diverse and all those like brilliant people that yeah that we study with that's great to get to work i mean that's one of the just the benefits of mba or grad school in, in general is you get to uh, be around a lot of really smart people. Um, and you do get diversity, different countries, different industries and stuff like that. But as you said, with MSX, it's also different ages. Uh, it's uh, really different. Somebody's a captain of a ship and somebody's uh, going to be prime minister of a country, right? So uh, yes. a lot of different things. Uh, and again, design thinking, uh, That you talked about the versatility of that the idea of empathizing and, and uh, ideating and prototyping and testing, uh, these are things that would apply to regulatory issues. You know, if you're going to run a government, if you were working at the Bank of Thailand, you would need to do that. Uh, if you're working, uh, if you have a sugar business, you need to do it. If you run a ship, uh, for, or it's probably a battleship for the Navy, but yeah, I mean, whatever it is, that, that's a skill that would carry over. So you can see why that's so important. Uh, to the MSX. Uh, but yeah, I think it's great that you point out that it's a full-time immersive experience, uh, which is very different. Um, and it's why actually a lot of ties don't get executive MBAs because they are evening or weekend programs and you can't get a student visa for that. Um, so it does need to be a full-time program uh, and MSX offers that. Um, so, yeah. so what a great experience. You said it started in the summer. What, what is the total timeline of it? So the total timeline would be, if I'm not wrong, um, I would say it's one full year, but okay. I don't remember when, when it started. <laughs> right. But, yeah. but a, a full year. And then you said uh, for, for most people. Four semesters. Four semesters. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. four semesters. Yeah. If, if I'm not wrong, um, the MBA one would have six semester. Okay. All right. Because yeah. they have the internship and you're not doing the internship, yeah. yes. right? You're, you're just yes. doing the classes. Okay. Yes. Um, yes. So a little bit shorter, uh, but as you said, also a lot more focused. There's expectations that you already have the core. Uh, so kind of traditional of, of executive programs where you get to dive into the things you really want to learn and you do mm -hmm. that pretty quickly. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so after that, you immediately came back and, and went back to your family business. Is, is, uh, is that what you did or what did you do? No, no, I actually worked. Okay. Um, I, I did, uh, because after I, um, during my class, uh, I really interested in design thinking and I want to be more experienced in it. So um, at a time, I wanted to just during the class, I wanted to do some internships or get some job in that. But then because of my experience was 
not enough, right? Because I just start learning about it. Um, I cannot get a job at that time. So big, but um, as I told you that Stanford changed my life because I was the person who wait for the right time. But then I realized that there's no perfect moment that everything is ready, right? So right. I learned that I have to create opportunity for myself. <laughs> so um, that that was I got when I were in Stanford. So um, I because I want to have more experience in design thinking, but I could not uh, get full time job at that time. I start to offer myself to teach design thinking. Oh, awesome! At yes, where? yes. Um, start from when I were in Stanford to start to teach. Um, my classmates in MBAs and, and MSX because um, it was very difficult to get in the school class. Right. But I had that experience. So my friends start to ask like, Pla, why don't you help uh, yeah. sharing what you have learned? So that's how I start. And I also um, help um, consult my friend who do, did a lot of startup because, you know, like uh, Stanford is like the Right. The, the area is like uh, Silicon Valley. So there are right. lots of people that want to do startup. Right? So I use my uh, knowledge from design thinking to help advise or like brainstorm with people. And um, with that, uh, I train myself to learn more because I got to teach people. And with that, um, when I had more experience, uh, I start to teach at um, workshop in in GSV as well yeah very cool that's awesome um I mean yeah when you say it's a life-changing experience and that you really got into design thinking I mean that's the <laughs> that's the most extreme proof I think you could have uh you were so passionate about it that you started teaching it so uh that's fantastic and using it as you said because you can use it to help those startups and and things like that so um immediately put it into practice both in teaching yes. and in, in doing. Um, so that's really exciting. Um, and, and I think uh, uh, design thinking is also really helpful in, in, in social enterprise and social impact. And, and this is something you said your friend started an NGO and uh, that's something that's really important. And I know we've talked you know, we've talked off and on over the years, but one of the times was because uh, we were doing the um, social enterprise conference at the United Nations uh, and I knew this was something that you were interested in. And then when we spoke, it turned out your brother, your younger brother, uh, was really interested in that space as well. And so he actually came to the conference. I remember him being there. Um, yes. And so, um, so that was cool. And you start to see that, that these things become not just a part of who you are, but as you said, everyone you talk to uh, can kind of pick up on your passions. And, and I definitely in spending time with him, saw, uh, saw that same passion and, and saw those similarities. And, and so that was cool. Um, and so this becomes really part of your DNA, uh, really becomes part of who you are uh, and how you work. Um, and then, so how long did you do that before you came back to Thailand and, and came back to the family business? For a year. Okay. So you did that for a year, then you come back to Thailand and then, uh, and go back to your family business. Obviously that's been uh, so five years now, I guess, uh, looking yes. at the timeline and how does it feel? People often wonder, cause a lot of the people we talk to are either, uh, 
they've only been out for a couple of years. Uh, when you're five years out, uh, six years out, do you can you actively put your uh, studies to work? You know, can you, do you knowingly say these are things that I learned and this is going to help me be better at my business, or is it just kind of more organic and and you just go about your job? Um, well, I that's a good question. Um, I think when I um, finished my school and I decided that I want to come back to Thailand and use what I learned um, in real life, right? I, I thought, I planned, I planned to bring things, especially design thinking, to use it in daily life work um, and uh, spending from there to now it's around five years. I would say um, it hasn't gone as a plan, but when I uh, go back and think about it, it's actually more like organically mm. ingrained in, in what I have done. For example, um, when I came back, I sat working in Elephant Sanctuary and right. Resort. Right. And the, the reason be is because I want to um, start uh, I, I would call it prototype. Mm -hmm. <laughs> As a design thinking, we said, um, when we want to testing, we start from things that uh, we can control risk, right? So I plan that in long term, I want to use what I have learned with my family uh, business, the sugar business. But that business has involved like many thousands of people. Right. It's, it's large. So I said to myself, okay, let's, test with something smaller <laughs> yeah that's great <laughs> yeah so um i i work for um a elephant sanctuary and i combine things that i have learned and more than not only the design thinking but the other part of uh gsb that is quite um important is the social impact school right. in gsb which i think um social impacts uh, lab that there is social impact lab in GSB and the class about social impact in GSB is in my opinion one of the best in the world that that what I think oh for sure and at a time <laughs> and at the time I uh, got a chance to attend few of few of those um, when I come back I work for elephant sanctuary I think I have combined like the social impact part and the design thinking part into what I have done at the sanctuary pretty well. Great. So um, we have, I have found um, a foundation, elephant foundation. Um, and then we start to use design thinking to redesign program, redesign the experience of people that visit our sanctuary. Okay. So uh, it's just what, like what you said, start from <clears throat> from empathize, right? But uh, for this case, it's not only to empathize the tourists or not only our employees or staffs, but also to empathize with elephant. What sure. elephant yeah. wants or, yeah. or what is good for them. And right. then elephant caretaker or mahouts, right? And then, um, so uh, I start to get to understand their needs and we got a chance to, uh, we have a student 
well, I would say there are a school in, we have contact schools in many countries to visit our uh, resort. Oh, great. So there was a, a program that called like volunteerism where a student come from uh, international school around the world, mm-hmm. visit our our resort and stay with us for six or seven nights. Okay. And yeah, then then they learn about elephant. So I use this as opportunity to redesign the program for people to got to learn more about elephant and understand about animals and and environments. Yeah. And um with those, um, there are many different school visit us. So I redesign and test it and then get feedback. And every week we get new students, we improve the program to be better and better. Awesome. Yeah. So just use design thinking. And at the end uh, of the program, um, one day I got email from one student that visited us and she told us that she went back to her school in, in America and she attended some conference and got like a winning award for as um, something about uh, her experience that she learned from us that changed her to become environmental uh, like um, advocate or something. Right. Advocate or That's something amazing. Like, yeah. That's great yeah. to see the impact that you had on the person uh, and then yeah. to have that impact recognized by, by an organization. So uh, you, that's to the proof that the prototyping, the testing, that it all paid off, right? Yeah, yes, yes. And, and I think that's like um, things that make me feel so proud. And it's not because of me, but this thing happened because of everyone that in the picture, like my staffs that helped me think about these programs, the students that give feedbacks and those things, using the process of design thinking. Right. No, that's amazing. Um, And to put the resort into context for people, uh, you know, I think when they hear Elephant Sanctuary, they kind of picture Chiang Mai where it's just that and it's like a day trip or or something like that. Or um, and there's obviously a lot of levels uh, and people use the word sanctuary a little loosely. And um, there are some practices that are, are, are definitely negative. But I think people have learned that elephant painting is awful and, and there's certain practices that you really want to avoid. Uh, but yours is, when we say resort, it's huge. I mean, you have, uh, you can have like uh, uh, companies go do retreats there. I mean, you can have hundreds of people. So it's a very big resort. And then there's just a, a lot of jungle available for the elephants. Uh, so they're in this huge space. Um, and the Mahouts themselves, uh, I've been there a couple of times, but they have great relationships, you know, with the elephants. And, and um, one of the things, and I'm, I'm sure this is something that's still done, but one of the things that was showed off was the how to use positive reinforcement, right? Because people are really worried that you have to punish elephants in order to get them to do what you want. And so they made it a point of showing, no, you can, you can just reinforce positive behavior and that will also work. It's is it slower? Yes, but also it's much better and much kinder. Um, and you could see. I've been around elephants a lot in Thailand. I was a journalist in Southeast Asia, so I've seen a lot of different types of interactions, and they have made me uncomfortable over the years. Um, and 
and, and uh, with other animals as well that we won't go into, but uh, there are some negative interactions with animals for sure in Southeast Asia. Uh, so I think this, I can say personally, uh, that this is the most positive relationship I've ever seen between caretakers uh, and the animals and the, and the tourists, the visitors. Uh, I mean, it's a really, really positive uh, methodology and engagement. So uh, what a rewarding place to, to get to use design thinking um, and, and to pay off your degree. So I've always thought it was cool that you went back there and that that was the thing you did, but I didn't understand why and, until you told me that. So that's, that's really interesting. Thank you. Um, and so how long did you stay there? Um, for a few years. Okay. And, and then, and what was right next? now? Yeah. I, I also, um, apart from that, I, um, also worked for as a side job, um, for my passion. I, uh, work for UNDP and oh, organization awesome. like that. Yeah. That's yeah. great. So that's the development program of the United Nations, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, wonderful when you can do stuff like that. Uh, working for the UN, uh, we've uh, done as well, like you, like I said, we, we hosted uh, the social enterprise conference at the UN, but we had a lot of private sector partners and, uh, and other NGOs, and that was really rewarding. But, uh, but there is a big presence of the UN in Southeast Asia. It's a tough place to get a job. Uh, so uh, that must've been really exciting. Uh, and this was something you did part-time or that you did for a little while or how, how did that work? It's a part-time and I still from time to time doing it. That's so um, I work as a project advisor and facilitator. So for example, the, the largest program that I did was to work in the southern part of Thailand, the, the three provinces at the southernmost. Yeah. Um, yeah, would help them to uh, start their um, so, social enterprise. Okay. Yeah, to help the locals to create, generate income. Yeah. That's great. So I use this design thinking and of course the social impact knowledge right. that I've learned from Stanford to help right. them. Yeah. Well, that's a, a great project as well. And, and for non-Thais that are listening, uh, Southern Thailand uh, had historically been a conflict area um, and you know had, had definitely been a place that needed assistance. Um, so there's Isan and, and stuff in the North where people tend to go, but uh, the South, uh, it, 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 it was a little bit dangerous since, well, more than a little bit, but uh, it's an area where uh, that needs help, uh, but that can be difficult to get help. So a really important place to work uh, for people that are, you know, thinking that Southern Thailand is Phuket. It's not, <laughs> right? So uh, <laughs> this is a totally different uh, type of area along the Malaysian border um, and uh, a really important place to work. And so what was that experience like? Really gratifying, I would assume? Yes, um, that's, I am so, uh, I will say, how do you say? It's, it was honor that I have a chance to work with, um, with UNDP team and the local people. I think it's um, very 
interesting that there are lots of things I learned from the local people. Yeah, they when like many of and I think it's like also useful for me. Like when I have worked with them, I have learned, and I think there are things that I should keep in mind when I work with other people. For mm. example, um, all the local people they have their own knowledge and their wisdom, right? But um, sometimes because of the language and the communication, um, sometimes they might feel uncomfortable to explain things, right? Right. And um, so when when you were there, you have to make sure that you make them feel comfortable with you, and not that you went there and like tell them to do things that you have to also exchange knowledge and like they learn something from you and you learn something from them as like exchange partner. I love it. That's fantastic. I think that is wonderful advice to all aspiring uh, NGO workers or uh, volunteers or whatever you're doing is you can't show up and say, oh, I'm the smart person from America or from Bangkok or whatever, and I'm going to teach you everything. When you when they have been doing farming or whatever they're doing for uh, you know generations, uh, you do need to respect those people, uh, and that creates a much more uh, comfortable and productive environment. Uh, so I think that's a great piece of advice. Yeah, and and I think one thing that I've got from my Stanford um, social impact class, which is I think helpful for me when I work even for UNDP or the business world. Is um, when talking about um, social impact, the question that I we always ask in school is how to make it sustain in the long term, mm. and um, the key that I have got is that we have to make like to create business value of thing, even though it's a nonprofit, but you still have to create value for customer to pay money, yeah. not that you're waiting for the donation. Right. So um, for example, for my own uh, elephant sanctuary, even though I set up the foundation, it's just for um, to make sure that elephant will be well taken care of, but we mainly operate by income that we get from tourism, eco-tourism, right. not from donation. Right. Yeah, and, and that um, when I work for UNDP, I think this is the part that I uh, I think that that's why I I like the project that I'm working with. So we try to empower the local with um, economic like development, like to build business, uh, have yeah. them create business, not not waiting for donation. Right. No, I think that's yeah. super important. And having taught social enterprise and coached people on it. It sounds relatively simple, but it is really hard to teach people that, especially if they've been working in the uh, the social sector for so long. Like you said, they're so used to that uh, mechanism of get donation, do good deed, get donation, do good deed. Business is a totally different thing. It has to be profit driven. Um, and so uh, we uh, actually there's a video on our on our website of, of me doing a speech about social enterprise at the UN. And I'm trying to teach people you've got to be consumer-driven, profit-driven. You've got to understand that mechanism uh, because self-interest drives everything. That's the way of the world, such is life. So people need something in return. 
Uh, so whether that's an ecotourist that wants an experience or they want luxury or they want uh, to brag that I've been to Thailand or they want to learn something they can go teach. I mean, they have to get something out of that experience um, and you've got to deliver to your customers um, and it, your job is to identify what is it they want empathy right uh, and then you've mm -hmm. got to deliver it um, but that's where you get the sustainability and I, I think that's that is a really important part of how Stanford teaches because it's a business school right that's what I always tell yes. everybody it's a business school you can't just say I want to save the world got to have a way to do it in a profit-driven way or you're applying to the wrong program, apply to the Save the World program, not the business school. <laughs> yes, yes. But um, in on the other hand, I think this social impact issue also um, ingrained in business world nowadays. Um, even though we talk about business, but right now business cannot just focus on making profit, right? You have right. to care about like people around you, like your staffs, Mm -hmm. um, your stakeholders, people that live near your factory, all those things. So right. I think um, the um, things that I have got from Stanford, even though I don't like realize it at that moment, but now when I think about it, like looking back, I realize that it's actually like organically grow and, and right. help me a lot in my like life part right now. Right. Yeah. Well, and especially we work with HR as well. And that's one thing that, that people help struggle with millennials or, or new employees is that people use, I mean, you're still delivering value. Everything you're describing is still about delivering value. It's just not always money, right? Salary is not enough to inspire an employee these days, or it depends on the employee, of course, but uh, delivering meaning is important but you're still delivering something. You're, uh, it's, uh, again, empathy, but you understand that they want meaning, they want to be challenged, they want social impact. Uh, so even if you, as a company, like you said, you can't just worry about profit, that's true, but that's because the consumers are demanding that you do something that has a social impact. Then your company is associated with social good, and so they buy your product. I mean, there's still money in that equation, right? Uh, it's just that you're having to deliver more value of different types than you used to. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's still a business model, uh, but as you said, it, it is more complicated than it used to be. You can't just say, here's some sugar, give me some money, call it a day. You know, it's a, it's a more complex ecosystem uh, than it used to be. Yes, definitely. Well, um, well now, uh, I think your uncles and your aunts and your dad and everybody can be really appreciative and, and recognize not only is Stanford a great school, right? But the business world has changed. And so that's why the third generation, uh, are you third generation? Yes. Yeah, ever, the third generation, right? Uh, so that's why the third generation wants to go to school. They wanna learn new things. And it's not to come back and just do business as usual. It's because, the environment has changed, which means companies have to change. Um, and change management is the hardest thing out there, especially in a family business. I mean, convincing your grandparents to change something when they built it from nothing. Uh, talk about a difficult conversation. I mean, you said that's why it took you a year to convince them to IPO, right? Yes, yes, yeah. a year. <laughs> it wasn't a conversation. It was hundreds of conversations. So, um 
yeah, change management is is really difficult. Uh, but as you said, there are, there are some tools that can really help you. You're going to empathize with your customers. You're going to empathize with elephants. You're going to empathize with uh, employees. You're going to empathize uh, with the older generations. I mean, you have to understand everybody's mindset, understand all your stakeholders, what is it they want, and then you figure out a way to deliver to everybody. And they all need to be incentivized differently. Uh, so it is very, very difficult, but so rewarding when, when you can get it right. Yes, definitely. Well, Pla, that is an amazing story. Uh, I love it. Uh, I remember a lot of, I mean, it's crazy to me that it's been almost 10 years because I seriously remember all of this stuff. Um, but uh, so I remember all of your stories because they were so interesting. I remember, of course, uh, as I said, I went to the resort a couple of times um, and you were kind enough to uh, to host me and, and to um, have the general manager show us all of it. Uh, and that was an amazing experience. So, so yeah, this has always been really personal to me. Um, and because you and I both care about social impact, social impact, and and uh, and and the UN and all of these other things, so you and I have always had a lot in common. Uh, but there are still things in this conversation that I hadn't heard. So not only is this great for our listeners, definitely, uh, but I found it really inspiring and rewarding. Thank you. All right, Plaw, that was uh, an amazing uh, conversation. Like I said, amazing story. And I really appreciate you taking the time today. That was uh, all definitely new stuff. Uh, we've done, I think this is the 10th pod podcast or something like that. So we've talked to a lot of people, but definitely uh, I, I think almost everything you said we haven't heard before. So that was really helpful. Okay, I'm, I'm glad. Um, and it's my honor that I share my experience with you and and other people today. If there's anything in the future that can be helpful, like any question, just you can just reach me and ask. That's more. so kind yeah. of you. Yeah, because I do want to do follow ups because I know these last like uh, I thought it was going to be a twenty minute podcast and they've turned into an hour, hour and a half. It's like I can't <laughs> I can't get enough of learning about your stuff. So uh, definitely, we'll do a follow up, and I'm I will love to talk to you again, and I'm sure people would love to hear it. But thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, uh, as I said, really inspiring story and, and congratulations on all your success. Mm -hmm.